For the last couple months, we've been in the book of Esther at the Mill Church, so I want to just give a quick recap. Uh, king Xerxes was a king of Persia who reigned over 127 provinces, and his kingdom had a population of approximately 50 million people. He was the most powerful king of the day. The previous kings had allowed the Jews to return to Jerusalem, but most did not make the 850-mile journey back to their homeland that was destroyed. Instead, they remained in and around Susa, which was the center of the Persian Empire. Two of them, Mordecai and Esther, are highlighted in this book. Esther grew up being raised by her cousin, Mordecai, who is considered by most theologians to be the author. Xerxes had elevated Haman higher than all the other officials, which was a high honor considering the size of the kingdom. When Mordecai refused to kneel down in Haman's presence, Haman became enraged. Learning that Mordecai was a Jew, Haman petitioned King Xerxes to order all the Jews to be killed on an appointed day. Esther was picked bachelor style by the king to become the queen after his first wife had betrayed him. Esther learned that Mordecai was distressed, so she sent her attendants to find out what the issue was. The fact that Esther had to ask why her cousin was mourning tells us a lot about her place within the kingdom. She was isolated and out of touch with the goings-on. After communication back and forth between Esther and Mordecai, which went through messengers regarding Haman's decree, Mordecai convinced Esther to beg for the king for mercy of the Jews. Before she would petition the king, Esther asked Mordecai to gather the Jews in Susa and fast for three days while she did the same. And that brings us to chapter 5, verses 1 through 8. On the third day, Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the palace in front of the king's hall. The king was sitting on his royal throne in the hall facing the entrance. When he saw king es- Queen Esther standing in the court, he was pleased with her and held out to her the gold scepter that was in his hand. So Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter. Then the king asked, What is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? Even up to half the kingdom, it will be given to you. If it pleases the king, replied Esther, let the king, together with Haman, come today to a banquet I have prepared for them. Bring Haman at once, the king said, so that we may do what Esther asks. So the king and Haman went to the banquet Esther had prepared. As they were drinking wine, the king again asked Esther, Now what is your petition? It will be given you. And what is your request? Even up to half the kingdom, it will be granted. Esther replied, My petition and my request is this. If the king regards me with favor, and if it pleases the king to grant my petition and fulfill my request, let the king and Haman come together, come tomorrow to the banquet I will prepare for them. Then I will answer the king's question. The king would sit on his throne and face toward the gate, which allowed him to see through the inner court. Most people weren't allowed in the inner court without permission from the king first. But since Esther was a queen, she was allowed to enter on her own standing. However, the king had to accept her into his presence once she was there. When someone stepped into the inner court, he could decide to have them put to death, or he could grant them permission to approach him. It had been 30 days since the king had seen the queen, which implies that his heart had cooled towards hers. So this is a big gamble with her life. She's risking everything on the benefit of others. She could simply continue on her way with her daily activities and not tell anyone that she was a Jew, and she would survive the Holocaust. Or she would stand up 
for the people of God and risk her own life. She's at a crossroads. God puts us in situations in our daily lives that we have a chance to impact people with our love and kindness as well. Every day we are faced with decisions that could affect the outcome of people's lives and we may not even realize it at the time. We all have someone in our life who needs more love, more kindness. Who is that for you? Who will that be this coming week? If you could, I'd ask you to close your eyes. I want you to visualize this with me. I want you to see in your mind someone that is hurting. Picture that someone you interact with. Maybe someone that you see but don't know by name. Maybe someone that is crying out for someone to listen. Put a face to your thoughts. Picture that person. Maybe it's a coworker that is down on their luck, or a friend that is struggling with an addiction, or a neighbor that is lonely, or a family member that is walking as far from God as possible. Maybe it's the person right next to you. Who is it? Their heart is broken. Their joy has left them. They ache to fit into society. They yearn for just one shoulder to lean on, for just one ear to bend their way. Find that person in your mind. Do you see their face? Do you see the pain in their eyes? Now keep that image in your memory. Go ahead and open your eyes. We should all have someone on our hearts. Now let's take an action step this week and reach out to whoever we have visualized here this morning. Every person is different. Every situation is different. Every relationship requires a different action step. Maybe it's a phone call or a text, grabbing a cup of coffee, bringing them a meal, giving them encouragement, whatever it is. Whoever is on your heart and whatever is on your mind, please take the time this week to take action. May we be a church of actions. Some of you are probably thinking, I've said the prayer of salvation. I've given my life to Christ. I've proclaimed him as my Lord and Savior. Nothing else is required of me, Nick. And you'd be right. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. I think it would be fair to say that you might be the same exact people that are inactive in your faith. If you think saying a prayer and showing up on Sundays is what God intended for you, then you might as well refer to yourself as religious and not a follower of Jesus Christ. My second response would be, we need to finish Paul's message to, the, to Ephesus. The very next verse says, For we are his workmanship, created in Jesus Christ for good works, which God prepared beforehand, that we should walk in them. That person that flashed in your mind who I challenge you to connect with this week, God has been preparing you for this moment. He has put this person on your heart for a reason. Good works will never get you into heaven. But God has created you for doing his work here on earth. Your good works may make you a believer, may make someone else a believer. Maybe not today, maybe not tomorrow, but plant that seed and let it grow. Or your good works may inspire someone else to get in on the action. Don't sell yourself short. We all have a part to play in this mission of reaching the ends of the earth. How glorious the day, as Adam was talking about earlier, when we can stand in front of our Maker and hear those words, Well done, good and faithful servant. 
and have all those that you've impacted standing around you. I guarantee that there are some of you thinking to yourselves that you'll be active in your faith once you get your life in order. I was there. You're telling yourself you need to work on you so that you can love on others. You don't want to love on others until your life is perfect. Well, I think we all know that day will never come. Jesus never asked you to be perfect. He was perfect for you. It's like the person waiting to give more to the church once they get their finances in better standing. The day just never comes. Check out what God has to say about this. Haggai, chapter 1, verse 7 through 9. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Consider your ways. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house, that I may, t- may take pleasure in it, and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. You look for much, and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house that lies in ruins, while each of you busies himself with his own house. God is telling his people to stop worrying about their own homes and start worrying about his home. In other words, God will take care of your issues after you take care of his. How many people have stood up here with this microphone and proclaimed that they sacrificially committed to the bold campaign, not knowing where the money would come from? Yet family after family has stated that God has provided the means to meet their commitment. There's a lesson here. If we have the faith in God to act on his behalf, then God will in turn act on our behalf. When Esther enters the court, the king was pleased with her. It doesn't mention it in this passage, but one would have to think that God played a part in King Xerxes allowing Esther to approach him. Furthermore, it took faith by Esther that God would be with her in the moment that the king saw her. That word faith, I think, is a funny word. It's hard to define. The dictionary defines faith as having confidence or trust in a person or thing. I wouldn't stop there, though. I think faith requires an action. You often hear the phrase leap of faith or step of faith. What does what good does what good does having confidence in something do if we just sit on the sidelines and wait? As Pastor Zach has been highlighting in the past few weeks, our faith needs to be active. There's certainly value in studying God's word, listening to worship music, watching Christian shows, etc. But if all we do is stay in our Christian bubble and not act on our faith by sharing it or showing it to the outside world, then what value does it really have? During her three days of fasting, Queen Xerxes would have taken off her normal royal attire, and she would have been wearing her mourning garments. Did you notice in the text how Queen Esther approached the king? She put on her royal robes. She waited for the king to reach out his scepter, and then she touched the tip of it, as was the custom. The king holding out his scepter is a sign that no harm will come to you when you enter the court. And the touching of the tip of the scepter was a form of thankfulness and submission to the king. Even though Esther had God in her corner, she still came before the king with humility, following the cultural norms. Being a child of God does not give us the right to act like fools. When I say act, that's not exactly what I mean. What do you think would happen if she came running into the court, screaming, yelling, demanding that the king denounce his decree. I don't think it would have went well. Our faith should give us confidence that God is behind our decisions, but if anything, Jesus has also taught us to be humble in how we present ourselves to others. In verse 3, King Xerxes offers to give up to half of his kingdom to Esther. 
In those days, Persian kings would give their wives cities as a sign of affection. You may recognize this phrase from the book of Mark, chapter 6, verse 23. King Herod said to his niece, Whatever you ask of me, I will give you up to half my kingdom. It was a common phrase back then. It was to show that the king was well pleased. In this instance, she asked for the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And if you know the story, John's head ended up on a platter. Esther doesn't demand that the king and Haman attended a banquet. She asked the king if they would do it if it pleases them. Again, she is showing her humbleness in front of the king. Why a banquet? Why wait? Why not just ask? Most likely, she didn't feel that the king was ready to submit to her request. So after some food and drinks, Esther asked the king and Haman to return the next day for another banquet. The king would normally eat his meals by himself in those days. His officials and nobles would be in a different room. A Persian banquet would have two courses, the first course consisting of eating meat and drinking water. The second course was fruit and wine. By asking the king to have another banquet with her, Esther was testing the waters to see how much favor she had gained. And by adding Haman to the invitation, Esther was inflating his ego. As we will see, Haman takes great pride in being invited to the follow-up banquet. This request for a second banquet makes it appear that Esther has cold feet and asking King Xerxes to rescind his decree to kill all of the Jews. However, this is a good reminder that we need to be patient in our decisions. God works on his own time, and we don't always understand it. After all, God is God, and we are not. Patience is one of my weaknesses, and if you want proof, well, my kids will be here later. You can ask them. seems that I'm always after them to hurry up for different reasons. But as soon as they are impatient with me and my delayed response, I lecture them on patience. And then they, in that they can't expect me to do exactly what they want when they want it. In fact, I can still hear my high school English teacher who had this, she was this short little old lady who had the deepest voice, but she would always say, patience is a virtue one must strive to obtain. Well, I'm still striving. You know, I was... I was starting to write this uh, sermon this week, and uh, I decided this is free therapy. Um, I was sitting in bed typing on our laptop, and Christy was next to me talking on the phone, and the kids were all in bed, and Tate, who is four, our youngest, yells, Dad! So I yell back, What? And he says, I need you! Well, I think most parents would probably think that was an emergency, but knowing Tate, and he does this all the time, I slowly got out of bed, went in his room, and said, what? I love you. I love you too, Tate. Let's go back to bed now. Shut his door, went back, started typing some more. All of a sudden, I could hear his feet hit the floor. Opens his door, comes in our room. Dad, can Mom come tuck me in? Yes, Tate. As soon as she's done on the phone. Okay. Back he goes. A couple of minutes later, Dad! I didn't even ask what. I just got up, went in his room. It's too bright in here. Now, he has a lamp that's dimmable, and he has a diffuser, which has a light. He's had these on for two years straight. I mean, he wants them on because it's too dark. So I said, Tate, you want those on? No, no, it's too bright in here. I can't sleep. Okay, so I turned the lamp off. That's good to go. Go back to bed. 
I go back, I'm typing some more. Here comes Tate's feet again, through the door. And at that point, I was actually writing about patience. I threw my hands up and I said, if you come in here one more time, and I didn't finish, I'm not sure what I would have said. Put his tail between his legs and off he went. Christy got off the phone, she went in to tuck him in, and he was standing in his room crying. He wouldn't even get into bed. And he wouldn't even talk to her. So, of course, that broke my heart. So, so I did go and apologize and put him to bed. And, but it's just amazing. Free therapy, if you ever want uh, free therapy, write a sermon. Yeah, I need patience. I am the dad that is telling my kids to be patient, which I think is my job. Yet when it comes to God, I am the son that is asking my father in heaven to hurry up and do things on my time. Proverbs 14:29 says, Whoever is patient has great understanding, but one who is quick-tempered displays folly. We as a society are all about instant gratification. Here's how things go in my mind with God. Fasting for three days? Come on. I'll fast for three hours, then I want my answer. Who do you think I am? I need to eat. Wait to get an answer to an important question? No way. I prayed to you this morning, God. I want my answer now. And if you don't answer me, I'll make my own decision. We treat God like he has all the time in the world for us at our very moment of need, which he does. Except God is timeless. He's eternal. He's patient. In fact, when I picture heaven, I imagine when you do too, there isn't like this big clock hanging in the sky. There's no Apple watches, no cell phones, no alarm clocks, no calendars. We have to remember God is timeless. He knows what we don't know. Let's get back to the book of Esther here. Chapter 5, verses 9 through 14. Haman went out that day happy and in high spirits. But when he saw Mordecai at the king's gate and observed that he neither rose nor showed fear in his presence, he was filled with rage against Mordecai. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home, calling together his friends and Zeresh, his wife. Haman boasted of them about his vast wealth, his many sons, and all the way the king had honored him and how he had elevated him above the other nobles and officials. And that's not all. Haman added, I am the only person Queen Esther invited to accompany the king to the banquet she gave, and she has invited me along with the king tomorrow. But all this gives me no satisfaction as long as I see that Jew Mordecai sitting at the king's gate. His wife Zeresh and all his friends said to him, Have a pole set up, reaching to a height of 50 cubits, and ask the king in the morning to have Mordecai impaled on it. Then go with the king to the banquet and enjoy yourself. This suggestion delighted Haman and he had the pole set up. Haman was on top of the world. Think how big your ego would be if you were Haman. He was given this high position within the greatest kingdom. The king had previously granted him permission to kill all of the Jews in the land to fulfill his grudge against Mordecai. He was just invited to a second private meal by the queen herself, which consisted of him, the king, and the queen. For the first banquet, the king sent a messenger But for the second banquet, Haman was invited not through a messenger, but face-to-face by the queen. That wasn't something that most people were honored with. This is like winning the lottery today. Haman has to be thinking that Esther wants him there in order to bestow upon him a great treasure. And of course, as so often happens when we're on a high, on Haman's way home, he runs into the one person that could turn his mood 180 degrees. 
I don't admire the man, but I do admire his restraint for not dealing with Mordecai in the moment. As we all know now, I need patience. Mordecai had nothing to lose. He had no reason to bow before Haman. He already knows of Haman's plot to kill the Jews, and he can't bear to show any adoration towards Haman at all. Haman has everything he could have ever dreamed of, status and power. Yet the only thing that is consuming his thoughts is his hatred of Mordecai. Jesus Christ promised to send the Holy Spirit to be with us and in us until the day he returns. Can we have that inner peace and joy of knowing that our Lord and Savior has sent the Spirit to be with us, to guide us and to help us? Yet how easy is it for us to dwell on earthly things that distract us from having that true joy? Haman had these poles, which were also referred to as gallows, erected to 50 cubits. 50 cubits is roughly 75 feet. The pole or several poles were used to hang someone in those days. In the Old Testament time, death by hanging was considered a curse by God. The only plausible reason for the extreme height is so that it can be seen from far and wide, to use as a deterrent from others committing the same offense. Haman planned to do all of this in the morning, the day before the banquet, so that he could enjoy it. Did you see the contrasting ways that the main characters of the story are dealing with their decisions? Esther had been fasting for three days before she went before the king. Fasting is used throughout the scripture for the purpose of prayer, self-discipline, and realizing that we only need God as our provider. In Matthew chapter 6, verse 17 and 18, 18, Jesus says, But when you fast, put oil on your head and wash your face, so that it will not be obvious to others that you are fasting, but only to your Father who is unseen, and your Father who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. Jesus was teaching his disciples that fasting for the right reasons is pleasing to God and can be beneficial. Esther went to a higher authority than herself to gain wisdom and perspective. She knew that she had a seemingly impossible task ahead of her, so instead of relying on herself, she spent time in prayer and solidarity with God. Contrast, Haman chose to boast of his wealth, his family, and his position in society. Haman looked at himself as superior. He went to his family and friends for advice on dealing with his anger and rage towards Mordecai. He went to the people that were lesser than him in stature to gain their approval, and the result was as expected. The responses weren't so much as advice as it was affirmation of his feelings. They were just yes men. We don't need to surround ourselves with people that confirm our own feelings for us. Those people aren't doing anything to challenge us or to make us think deeper. There's a theory out there that says that you are the average of your five closest friends. Think about that. What type of person do you want to be? Do your closest friends display those qualities? I'm not saying you need new friends, but maybe you want to reconsider who your best friends are. When it comes to making decisions that are pleasing to God, we better have some people around us that are walking with the Lord. Whether you're a new believer or you've been doing this for 40 years, we should surround ourselves with people that will challenge us. We need people of God who can help us to see right from wrong and lead us down the correct path. Those forks in the road, similar to what Queen Esther had, they're difficult to navigate. That's why we go back to Esther and first spending time with God to discern the correct course of action. We need to seek God's wisdom, seek God's presence, Seek God's blessing 
and we need to seek out fellow believers. And then we need to act. This life wasn't meant to be spent alone. Imagine what your life would be like if you sought God before making important decisions. Imagine the things this church could do if we all sought God on a regular basis. Imagine the impact on Stratford and Edgar and Spencer and beyond if we have the faith to act in the name of Jesus Christ. Proverbs chapter 8, verse 17 says, I love those who love me, and those who diligently seek me will find me. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I just thank you today for, for your words and in this book of Esther and, and the lessons that we can learn. And I just ask that your spirit be with us this week as we seek out those that we can love and care for. And I just ask that we be a, a church of action, that our faith would lead us to action. In your name, amen.